Welcome to the Vince in the Bay podcast. This is episode number two. I'm Vince, and I'm continuing with the hacking theme from uh, the first episode of the podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to check it out. It was my recap of this year's DEF CON 23 hacking conference in Las Vegas, and it's available to listen to on my blog at vincentthebay.com, and you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And, of course, hit me up on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Vince in the Bay. And now, on with the show. Four years ago, Hector Xavier Monseger, an anonymous computer hacker better known by the online pseudonym Sabu, pleaded guilty in a U.S. district court to 12 counts of computer hacking and other crimes, a conviction that was kept secret from the public. At the time, many activists, supporters, and participants involved with Anonymous were unaware that months prior, Mr. Monseger, a.k.a. Sabu, had agreed to cooperate with the FBI who were investigating the criminal activity of hackers operating within the Anonymous Collective. Most notably, the arrest of a hacker known online as Anarchaos, and later unmasked as Mr. Jeremy Hammond. Recently, I had a chance to sit down with Mr. Monseger to learn more about his story. I am excited to welcome my guest, Mr. Hector Xavier Monseger. Did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, it's French. I don't speak French, so how I... Do you, how do you say it? I just say Monseger. Monseger. Like, yeah. Bo- like Bob Seger? Yeah. What would you describe yourself as at this point? Well, I mean, technically, I'm an ex-black hat hacker slash hacktivist, former, however uh-huh. you want to put it. All right. So, Hector, tell. Can I call you Hector? Sure. Is that means. what you is that what you prefer? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Tell me about your background. Me getting into computers was a direct result of my family going to prison, having no one around me. I was left alone in my apartment with my grandmother, who was sick and dying. And all I had left was a remnant of that fast life. My aunt buying me a computer right before she went to prison. And that was the computer that I utilized and I used to learn to break myself out of my confinement. Instead of being just a random Puerto Rican kid selling drugs and murdering people and enforcing and doing whatever it is that kids from that time were doing, um, I instead opted to educate myself and try to understand myself better. This is the early 90s when you get your hands on your first computer, correct? Yeah. The first, first, first official time I did touch a computer was around 92. But I, I did not get on the internet at that time. Uh-huh. Um, it was just a machine with a printer on it. What, maybe two years later, the, the 90, internet yeah. comes along? Yeah. Like 94-ish? What sparked that was CompuServe. And then after on CompuServe was AOL and... You know, all of a sudden you had a centralized system where people could communicate with each other directly as opposed to just simply logging in via your modem and looking for boards to read, you know, like BBS style. So that's that was how exactly I got online, which was through AOL. You got all those CDs in the mail with like oh, yeah. 500. I remember they started out, what was it, like 50 hours of free free internet yeah. and then it also it was 100 <laughs> and then it was like 500 and people were like wow 500 hours and they burnt it in one week yeah <laughs> it was a bugged out experience until i started to see people discussing hacking you know because there was a point in AOL history 
uh, especially in 95, where there was a guy called The Chronic, and he created a program called AO Hell. Um, AO Hell? AO Hell, yeah. So it was, it was essentially a program that, you know, used or automated um, AOL functionality. It also was a program that included, like, a credit card generator if you needed to make fake AOL accounts. It also came with, like, punters and account termination tools so that if someone's bothering you, you could terminate their account or you could kick them offline. It sparked that interest in my mind. Well, if people could do this, if I could do this, what else can I do? And this is like it's right towards the beginning of my research when I started downloading these zines and reading all these articles on security attack, me um, attack methodologies and attack vectors. One of the first Unix tutorials I read discussed common passwords and common usernames and how to break into Telenex. But one of the first targets was a German wearer's site. The most random thing in the world. And the username and password was the same as the domain name. So I basically got in and I left a really corny message with the letters and numbers in lead speak. It was the most absurd thing ever. I didn't destroy anything. I left the guy's site there with all his little downloads and stuff. That was my proof of concept. That was my turning point for me where I said, okay, well, this is doable. Now, what else can I do with this? Around that time frame, I started reading about the Masters of Deception, the Legion of Doom, the Internet's first cyber war. MOD was a group of guys who were mixed. It was a black guy, it was a couple of black guys there, it was Puerto Rican guys in there. And to me, that was amazing because as far as I could tell, the Internet was mostly white. Every single person I ran into were white people. And they were very obvious and blatant about their racism. You think racism on the internet now is crazy? Imagine racism back when there was no authority to say, hey, racism is bad, we're gonna ban you. There was no banning for racism. Yeah, I remember that period vaguely as kind of like the wild, wild west. I was about to say that, it was. I'm gonna ask you a question, I want you to be honest. Yeah. Did you or did you not ever hack the Gibson? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I believe you posted on Twitter earlier this year um, something about retiring the Sabu handle. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it was a reign of, from 1995 to 2011. Mm -hmm. In 1995, was that when you first appropriated uh, Sabu? Originally, my, my first hacker name, if you want to say that, my moniker, my pseudonym, was actually Buddha. <laughs> the reason why I use Buddha is not because of, you know, the obvious, because I'm a big guy, but the nickname of my family for me is Boo. The reason why they call me Boo is because this, that was the first word I ever spoke. Um, when I was born, I just started saying Boo, Boo, Boo. My grandmother gave me the moniker. So when I went online, and I was on AOL, and I had to create an account, and I had to create a, just a whole identity, I mean, Boo sounds kind of weird. I mean, that's a feminine name to really use. I mean, uh, so I said, well, what about Buddha? Boo, Buddha, okay, I could, I could go with that. If anything, Sabu is an extension of Buddha because I only used that for like six months. And I ended up seeing Sabu the Wrestler on TV on the Madison Square, cha uh, Madison Square Garden channel, channel 32 at two in the morning. And you would have ECW come out with Sabu jumping off of buildings and dressing himself up in barbed wire. I thought that guy was cool. So I went from Buddha, or rather I went from Buddha to Buddha to Sabu. 
I'm sitting here with uh, one Mr. Hector Xavier Monsegur. Monsegur. Yeah. He is, of course, better known as Sabu. Okay. So, Vieques, you, you apparently hacked into a government website or something like that. Tell me about that. What, what was that all about? For about 60 years, the United States Navy had acquired access to islands off the shores of Puerto Rico by the name of Vieques. Vieques is very small. It's actually very beautiful. If you Google it right now, you'll be surprised by how gorgeous it looks. The problem is that that island is not uninhabited. People live there. The problem is that the United States Navy were using um, depleted uranium shells on said island, and said shells started to spread some sort of radiation or cancer or whatever happened because at some point you reach a point where a big portion of the islanders of Vieques all have cancer and they're suffering from physical ailments. Now, once the people of the island started to protest this, of using uranium, uh, depleted uranium, uranium shells on the island with inhabitants, the United States Navy became aggressive. During a protest, a couple of uh, Navy men shot at some protesters, and the protesters went and stabbed up and cut a couple of Navy men. So it became a really big conflict on the island. Somewhere around the summer, I believe, of the year 2000, when the protests were really big, so big that even Reverend Al Sharpton was on the island protesting the United States Navy. The thing is that at this point, it's 2000, I've been already doing security research for several years. I've already expanded my skill set, and I'm hardcore into Unix. And my target is running Unix. Their infrastructure utilizes a whole bunch of CGI scripts their domains are hosted using uh, the domain name as the username, and in most cases, you know, the passwords were easy, but that's not how I got in anyway. But the point is that there were so many attack vectors associated with my target, and my target was the biggest internet service provider in Puerto Rico at the time, which was called PR Star. And PR Star hosted all of the Puerto Rican government websites, including the Department of Corrections and a myriad of government agencies. So I hacked into the, to the ISP. I gained access to all of the government sites. I started to spread across the infrastructure, getting access to more and more government sites. And then I left a message. Mind you, I was still a kid at the time, so the message, when I read it now, I'm kind of embarrassed because it's full of typos and it just doesn't make any sense. All of a sudden, everyone knows who Sabu is, at least in the, in the in Puerto Rico and around Puerto Rico, because it was all over the newspapers. People made documentaries where they throw my name in that, because that was such an insane incident. It came right at the apex of all the protests. There was even a, there was even a situation where my grandmother is watching the news and she hears my name being said on you know, Univision or whatever station she was watching. You know, she put on her chancletas, her sandals, and she came to the, living room, that's where I had my little laboratory set up, just me and a bunch of computers. She asked me, she said, hey, como te llama? I said, what do you mean, what, what do I call myself? My name is, uh, you know, Hector. She said, no, 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 por la computadora. You know, what, through the computer, what do you call yourself? I said, oh, I call myself Sabu. <laughs> what preceded that was a really funny, crazy situation. I was scared shitless because I thought she was gonna beat me up. There was that fear, uncertainty, and doubt 
of hearing your name on the TV and having the realization that something you did has some sort of impact if it, if it went that far. What I thought was a very lame and stupid defacement turned out to be Puerto Rico's first hacktivist operation. What was your grandmother's reaction? Was she pissed or was she... But how did she react? She was a, she was she was pissed. She, no, it, it's kind of difficult. She was pissed. Yes, she was more concerned that all of a sudden the FBI would knock on my door and arrest me. She already lost a son and her daughter. She didn't want to lose a grandson in the process either. After some time passed, that she noticed and nobody came knocking on no doors, and she was proud of me. You know, some people may may look at that like, wow, you know, that's that's not good parenting or whatever, but. She was more proud of the fact that I, I was not out in the streets selling drugs or shooting people. She was more happy with the fact that I'm learning and educating myself and participating in politics. Well, once I saw the reaction I saw from the media, changed my life. Why? Because it motivated me to continue hacktivist operations. And less than a year later, I participated in the first United States versus Chinese cyber war, which is Operation China. And that's a whole other topic. Okay, let's fast forward to Anonymous now. Yeah. Um, when did you first, when, where, why, how did you first learn about Anonymous and decide to participate? I started hearing about Anonymous around 2008, 2009. That's when you know you had Project Technology and all these protests against the Church of Scientology. I thought that was really amazing. I'm a big fan of people working together as crowds, making things happen. Um, I think it's powerful. The idea, the idea is powerful. My participation really came after the death of my grandmother. My grandmother passed away June 7th, 2010. And we could do some math here. Uh, I was arrested June 7th, 2011. So as soon as my grandmother died, I jumped directly into Anonymous because I needed an escape. You have to remember that the same week my grandmother passed away, my fiance left me and we had like worked on getting a house. My aunt was in prison. I became a foster parent through the, the legal system. Oh, and I lost my job at the same time. Within that same month, June 2010, one of the worst year, uh, months of my life, I needed an escape. So I went back to one of my oldest escapes, which was hacking. So before Anonymous, I pretty much had retired Sabu. I retired from hacking. Um, and it just so happens that Anonymous was in existence and they were doing something that I could see myself helping in, especially since there are no leaders. I started participating with Anonymous because I knew that I could just blend in and blend right out. I could just do an operation and just leave and move on with my life. Unfortunately, once I started hanging around Anonops and seeing the people that were involved in Anonymous in regarding to hacking, I was stunned to see that there was no real hacking taking place. We're talking about two, three hackers max. So I figured, well, I have a lot of skills. Perhaps I'll, you know, participate. So when you came into Anonymous, you readopted the Sabu handle? You know, it ended up that way, but that's not how it was supposed to be. Initially, I went in under a completely random new pseudonym, yeah. a random nickname that had nothing to do with anything. And um, unfortunately, I was using a, uh, a shell server, and the username of my shell server was Sabu. So when um, the server rebooted or it lost its connection, I forgot, I forgot exactly what happened. 
it reconnected on the it had a screen running with IRC. It reconnected and used and used Sabu the uh, username. So now that I'm connected at Sabu, I said, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So at that point, when you realized this mistake, what did you think? Did you? I didn't care. You didn't care. I didn't You're like, care. I'm just gonna keep doing. I'm just gonna keep going. There's a reason why I said I was past the point of no return. I just really, and excuse my language, I just didn't really give a fuck. I mean, I was already lost internally. I was stressed and depressed emotionally, but I cannot show those emotions around these two little innocent girls, these children, who I don't want them to be unhappy. I would rather hold that contempt inside of me and do karaoke with them all night um, or all day and just get online at night and take out my frustration somewhere else. You, you bring up the two girls. It had to cross your mind that what you were deciding to jump back into might jeopardize your custody of the girls. Yeah, but there's a problem with that. And there's, there's, you know, the common, that's a common retort. When people discuss the fact that I had these two children, why would I hack in the first place? Well, here's the problem. I've been hacking since the 90s. If the FBI is going to come and get me, they would have get me. They're going to get me regardless. I might be wrong, but the point is, there was no returning. It was going to happen regardless. Since you decided to readopt the Sabu handle, were you worried that folks from the past might recognize you? And they did. Folks from the past did recognize me, and unfortunately, many of them are FBI informants. A lot of those guys from FNet were FBI informants. And once they saw Sabu, the guy that used to own them on Fnet, all of a sudden is hacking with Anonymous. Um, oh, wait, we do remember that guy. His name is Hector or Xavier, I think. And he might be from New York. And uh, he might be Puerto Rican. And all those little bits of information just kept adding and adding and adding um, to something, to a sum. And that sum included my identity. Of course, I was, you know, I was concerned about that. But I was just so hurt inside that I was in a destructive mode. I expected arrest eventually. I expected it. Not because of operational security failures, because people like to say I have OPSEC fails, but they completely ignore the fact that I've been hacking for close to two decades. So if my OPSEC was that bad, I would have been caught back in 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, we would keep going. The failures that I made were just destructive. I had a destructive personality at that exact moment, um, and I just really didn't care. Do I regret it? Well, it all depends. Do I regret not taking care of my identity and protecting myself? It all depends. Had I not been arrested, where would I be today? I, I feel like sometimes we have to experience things. We have to live through these hard times and these hard moments to really appreciate life, but also to experience life. You know, whether or not I should have allowed myself to put myself through that situation, it is what it is. Would I do that again? Definitely not. So you decided to latch on to Anonymous. What's the first op that you participated in that you can remember? Technically, the first op would be Operation Payback. I mean, I, I think that would be the first operation because uh, nobody really knew who I was. So I, I ended up joining the main channel and watching all the people communicate back and forth. They were talking about taking down PayPal, MasterCard, and Visa. Now I'm laughing because I know judging by their capability and judging by their tool, because I started to debug their Loic tool, and they had the Hoik tool, and they had a whole bunch of different variants. I'm auditing these tools, looking for vulnerabilities. Lo and behold, I see that they're just flooding web servers, man. You're just flooding a web server. 
of a whole bunch of requests, or some of these tools were sin flooding, which was by 2000, by 2011 or the end of 2010, you know, you got sin, the invention of sin cookies, and you have the invention of so many different tools to combat these kind of denial of service attacks. I started to realize that there are people in the background of Anonymous that have some sort of skill and expertise. Because I knew that you could have 20,000 people in that channel. There's no way that you're going to take down PayPal, MasterCard, and Visa with a bunch of people just simply flooding a web server. You're not even using that much bandwidth. PayPal, for example, probably has hundreds or thousands of bouncers and you know proxy servers to handle millions of requests per second. So you're telling me 20,000 times whatever amount of seconds is gonna do any damage? No, not at all. But a botnet will, a botnet will, and that's exactly what happened. I guessed and I predicted that there's somebody in Anonymous with a botnet and I was correct. Now my task was to find them. I spent a lot of time hacking other hackers. That was kind of my well, well, bet when you were getting into it, that was kind of what it was, right? The hacking yes. wars, it was all hackers was, on hackers. It was hacker on hacker violence, right? Quote, unquote. Look at LA, look at look at PHC, look at all these groups, the original anti-sec. What were they doing? They were hacking other hackers. They weren't hacking Amazon.com. No, they were hacking their competition. Because when you hack your competition, you get to see what they're about. You know, you get to know who their identity is for whatever reason, you know? These days, people are doxing individuals. Back in those days, you could find someone's in documentation and just keep it private. You know, just the fact that you have that over them is enough. You don't need to expose it and, and get the guy raided or something or killed, or whatever. And then, of course, research. If you're hacking another hacker that is doing research and has zero days, you're walking away with a whole bunch of zero days you could utilize in your arsenal. So part of the reason why I started looking at who was behind the botnet or who was behind certain operations is because I wanted to see who actually had skills. And actually, I, I told this to, to Kayla some time ago, um, or Ryan. Um, I made a joke with him. I said, yo, did you know that you were actually my target? I was going to hack you, bro. Because out of all the people hanging around you in internet feds, you were the only one that was actually hacking anything. And then we just became friends. Me and Kayla became friends, and we started doing research together. And this was, uh, and you guys were doing this under the Internet Feds? That was the banner, yeah, underneath the banner of Internet Feds, which was created by one of the other members. Can you tell me a little bit about that group? So Internet Feds was a group that was created by certain members of Anonymous and LawSec. Um, and the whole point of the group was to organize certain individuals with certain skills, namely hacking or security research. That was the whole point of that. The reason why I was recruited into Internet Feds was because I went to pound hackers and I started asking if there were actually any hackers in here. Are there any hackers in the house? Um, who's doing research? Can I assist? I'm bored. I need to escape, right? So they're just like, whatever. They don't even, they're not even there to hack. They're just there to idle. So I started doing research on my own. So what was going on at the time? Well, Julian Assange. He was hit with that indictment. So I said, all right, well, let me do some research on the, the Swedish government then. And I started doing some prelim preliminary research. I posted the information into the channel with links. And so lo and behold, the guy hits me up and says, hey, would you like to be part of our hacker crew? And I'm like, 
Sure. You know, it's, it's crazy because I, I've already been through this, you know, 10 years before. I was hanging out with Hackwiser, Fear the Beer. I was hanging out with Pure Elite, the original Pure Elite, um, which people don't really know about. So I said, fine, so be it. Uh, how do I join your club? Oh, you have to ask, you have to answer three questions. You have to get them right. If not, you cannot join Internet Feds. <laughs> that was my first indication that Anonymous had some horrible oper operational security because any low-level IT FBI agent would have answered the questions and walked right into the little, little hacker party. But um, the three questions were, one, what is a SQL injection? So I gave him an example of what a, C a SQL injection is, and I explained to him what a SQL injection is. And then um, the second question was, well, what is Nmap? So well, Nmap is a network mapper. It's used for you know reconnaissance on targets, getting information about what ports are open, what services are running on those ports, yada yada yada. It's also very good at detecting uh, you know different web firewalls, well, not web firewalls, but firewalls in general. I said, okay. So what's the third question? He said, no, it's okay. You're in. Just here's the invite. So now I'm laughing hysterically. My little brother's sitting next to me. He's laughing. We're, we're, at this point, we're just laughing. Uh, this, is, this was just the funniest thing in the world. And mind you, I needed to laugh because I was just going through something mental, you know, the losses and people in my family. I was just like, let me just laugh. Let me just enjoy myself. Let me see what these guys are about. Maybe I could actually help them out. So I go into Internet Feds and it's full of random people, people that do not even belong there, but very nice individuals, you know, people that I really, really made friendships with, like Joe Pie 91 who's a very nice guy, even though he doesn't talk to me no more. But he's a very nice guy. Um, and then there's there's a whole bunch of other people there that ended up becoming informants on their own and, you know, were part of leaking anonymous information or AP addresses. There was just a bunch of trolls in there. From the internet feds, I, I, I understand that you transitioned, that's where you transitioned into LulzSec, is that, was that right? Well, there was a transitional period where we just weren't anything. We just were hanging out on a random server discussing operations for a bit during a, a time of turmoil within Anonops IRC network. And we were unable to actually work together or organize. So eventually we ended up a very, very small group after filtering people out through channels and networks. And we ended up with what people know as uh, LOSEC today. And those individuals would be? Well, it would be Sabu, Kayla, T-Flow, Topiary, Pone Sauce, AV Unit. Who came up with the uh, the title for the, the group? I have no idea. I'm assuming it's T-Flow and Topiary. I'm not really a lousy guy. I'm not into uh, <clears throat> all that funny stuff. I'm just a hacker. Tell me about the H.P. Gary hack. Well, the H.P. Gary hack was interesting because... You have a security company who is trying to, uh, as we know now, after reading all the emails and all the stuff that, that, that preceded the hack, we know that they were trying to drum up business for HB Gary and HB Gary Federal. So the hack itself was against HB Gary Federal because their CEO um, went to the Financial Times and basically said, hey, Anonymous is essentially a bunch of lamers, which you know what, at, at this point, I would have to agree. And I have all the identities because they're bad at operational security, which I also agree to that. The thing that bothered me 
is that if you're gathering this kind of information, I want to see what information you have. One, to see if my name is on that list. But that's, was it? No, my name was not on that list. It all depends on what names are there. How many innocent people are there? Regardless of how you think about me, regardless of what people think about me, I will protect innocent people. You know, it, it may sound, you know, kind of uh, hypocritical because I had victims in my crimes. You know, I, I did have victims, people that I targeted. Not people that I targeted, but companies that I targeted that, you know, um, had victims involved. And But in regards to Anonymous, I was protective. And I was very defensive anonymous of Anonymous. And I felt like, well, if this guy has a list of names and identities, I want to see what these names and identities are because we may be able to deter any possible arrest of innocent people that are simply on Anonops or simply using the anonymous avatar, you know, because they're into the idea itself. I jumped on it. After I read the article, I jumped on it. I started doing research. I found a SQL injection in the H.P. Gary Federal website. I extracted the database. Between all of us, we started cracking the, the MD5 hashes. I started to infiltrate the network using some of the logins. I found that they were using the Google Mail app. Um, I logged into their emails and started extracting emails, or rather, I passed that operation to somebody else to start extracting emails while I was social engineering the systems administrator of rootkit.com, which is, the, the, the twist here is that rootkit.com was a forum but they were also kind of like the hacking team of that time frame. They had a lot of malware research on there and there was a lot of zero day stuff in there. Unfortunately, I destroyed most of it, so I don't really know what was in there um, and what was lost. And while reading the emails, I also got to understand my target, which was uh, the individuals behind HB Gary. And by all means, I'm just telling you this story. I'm not glorifying my attack whatsoever. I'm very remorseful for the crime that I committed I'm glad I'm past that lifestyle. But just to continue with the story, I started to understand my target and utilized my social engineering skills to not only infiltrate rootkit.com, but also infiltrate the support system and their internal servers. And once I was inside the servers, I had access to all their source codes and all their projects and development, and I destroyed it all. Did you have any sense that you were that you or your your colleagues at that time were becoming a, um, a target a target by law enforcement? Well, it was only logical. Now we're messing with the government indirectly because HB Gary is a federal contractor, and I'm not sure if you noticed. After HB Gary, we actually elevated our level of attacks by hacking into Mantech and Raytheon and all these other companies. And then we got into the United States Senate and we just kept going and going. It just, it, it just escalated. It was a reverse avalanche. We just went up in privilege escalation. It can only be logical. You cannot be, you, you cannot simply ignore the fact that the, you know, the FBI is going to hunt you at this point. That is just reality. Um, so of course, naturally, we all start to become paranoid and we start changing channels every day. And our core group was, I'm surprised we made it that far. And we just got worse and worse and more destructive and more angry. And that's why we attracted a certain gentleman, Jeremy Hammond, who was doing certain destructive hacks himself. 
So it was like, it was kind of like fate that we all met, um, unfortunately. But uh, you mentioned Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy Hammond just showed up out of left field after Lowstack started doing some big hacks. Um, and the way he approached me essentially was to be part of Lowstack. He wanted to be part of Lowstack. And he wanted to do research with us. Um, unfortunately for him, most of those guys didn't like him. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of weird how he, you know his supporters now are the same people that really just disliked him as an individual because he was an anarchist. Um, and you gotta understand, a lot of these guys are not anarchists. I'm not sure if you've seen some of these gentlemen. Um, they're suburbanites. They're at at the very at the very worst, they're coffee shop revolutionaries. They're not ready for physical altercations. So for them to see a Jeremy Hammond appear, it was a, a threat. And I think that's pretty much why Lulsec ended up dying. Once again, my guest is Mr. Hector Xavier Monsegur. Monsegur. The InfraGuard hack. The FBI will tell you that's the hack that got me arrested. Apparently, they, they, they did not care that we were hacking foreign governments. As soon as we touched InfraGuard, that's when we kind of stirred the hornet's nest. And how long bet- between that hack and your arrest, how, how, how soon was it after it that? It felt like it was very soon. It was pro- maybe weeks, maybe days. It didn't seem real. Um, it only seemed real when I picked the kids up from school, we did homework, you know, I sent them to do their, take their showers, we did some karaoke, we watched a movie, that was, that was cool. But as soon as I sat in front of the computer, or as soon as I'm just outside, that's when things just felt so off. Just a lot of odd things going on. Then all of a sudden, I have known informants keeping me in chats, communicating, and I don't care. I'm not gonna sit there and judge you. If you wanna talk to me, go ahead, talk away. What do you wanna talk about? You wanna talk about the weather? You wanna talk about, you know, what's your favorite Chinese dish by all means? But, you know, of course I noticed that's a tactic. You know, if you have someone like that talking to you, it's just a weird situation. Yeah, let's fast forward to your arrest. So that day, I felt really uneasy. I did not sleep all night. It just felt off. Everything just felt off. I got I had that gut instinct or that gut feeling that something was not right. So I took the kids to school. I came back home. I started cleaning my laptop. So I was just there chilling, relaxing, waiting for the kids to come out of school. They came out of school. And we went to Rite Aid and I bought them a whole bunch of stuff. I bought them like $200 worth of coloring books and crayons because I had the feeling something was about to happen. So I made, it a, I made a church date where the girls would go and spend a couple hours at church for the night. Well, not for the night, but you know, just to go to church and hang out with the kids or whatever. That was probably the best decision I made because as soon as I dropped them off at church, Couple hours later, the, the feds are knocking on my door, and they say police. Police. Okay, you know, I I, I just told my brother to stay in the room and relax. I'm um, gonna see what's what's up with the door. Who's knocking? Why is the police knocking? Why are the cops knocking on my door at nine o'clock at night? And I open the door, and of course it's the FBI. And you know, it's it's not two FBI agents like some media have said it was. There were actually, you know, at least a dozen FBI agents roaming the hallway. They're all looking at me, kind of like deer in headlights. Like, they don't know what the hell they're looking at. 
Like they don't know if this is like this is this Sabu. They tell me to come out. They ask me to come outside. I say, yeah, by all means. I go to the hallway with you. I'm gonna lock my door. And so I asked the gentleman, uh, how can I help you? They said, well, look, we know you're Sabu. We know what you're doing. We know what you have done. Uh, we also know you have two kids in the house. So the best bet is just for us to, to have a chit chat inside and then uh, we'll figure out what's the next move. Otherwise, we're gonna call ACS. We're gonna have the kids removed post haste. Um, that kind of blew my mind because I expected to be arrested. I expected to have to deal with some sort of consequences. But then their tactic of using the children seems kind of extortionist and it was because it left me with no choice but to actually listen to what they were trying to talk about. At first there was that struggle because, okay, so they want to talk to me. I know it's going to end up in an arrest. Now, if I, if I fight them right now, if I say, well, no, listen, you know, whatever, um, I have to deal with ACS coming in and removing the children. I left the kids in the house, I went downtown. They said, look, we know who you are, we know what you're doing, we know that you're, you're Sabu and you're this and you're that and you know, you're, you're with Anonymous and you know, you guys are really out of control and you're hacked into InfraGuard and that's an FBI affiliate, that's like slapping us in the face. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, uh, so what, what are we talking about? Like, what, what, what is this right now? Well, we're offering you a once in a lifetime opportunity to cooperate. Your cooperation agreement is something we'll discuss, we'll figure it out, you know. The, the conversation itself was just, I can't really even talk about it much, not because I'm limited, um, but more because I really just forgot like I, it's something that I've I've tried to block out of my brain, because while they're just talking away at what they supposedly know, I'm thinking about a way to save the children. I'm thinking about a way to make sure that those two little girls don't even have to know I was ever arrested. I can only assume that what they want out of me is the identities of my comrades, right? I mean, that's what you usually see in the movies. That's what, that's what we usually see. If a rat rats, is, he's writing his friends out or he's writing somebody out. So now I'm sitting here like, okay, what can I offer the FBI that's more valuable than the identity of some random kid who doesn't even hack anyway? The first thing I offered them was control of Kuwait's biggest internet service provider. I had full control of the Kuwaiti embassy and I have full control of um, possibly even intercepting VoIP and doing a whole bunch of things. I probably could have just shut down Kuwait internet for the day if I wanted to. The second thing I offered was a hack that I've recently put my fingers on. And, I, and it was something that they had not known about, is that correct? Tips.fbi.gov, remote command execution. I just needed a way to, to trade something so that nobody could say four years later that I snitched everybody out which is kind of funny because that's what happened anyway. So you bargained with the FBI and how did they receive that? We went into cooperation agreement. One of the first things I told the FBI, I said, listen, unfortunately, you're not gonna get much out of me because one, I have no evidence on my computer. Two, I never logged IRC chats. So there was no IRC logs on my computer. So you don't even have that. You don't have no evidence of anything I did before. I cannot identify anybody because I don't have, I have no idea who these people are. They could be, if, they could be FBI agents themselves. I have no idea who these people are. I cannot identify them. 
to my astonishment, to my surprise, they seemed like they already knew this. They knew that I probably had no valuable information to give regarding the identities of anybody there. But I think this was more proof of concept of understanding Anonymous as a decentralized movement. And I'm sure this was like a case study for them on how to take down a decentralized movement. You know, because the FBI is very good at taking down structures like the Black Panthers and the FALN and all these other groups. They're very good at stuff like that. But I've, I don't think I've ever seen the FBI tackle a decentralized movement with no leadership and no hierarchy and structure. The problem was, I thought myself that Anonymous had no leadership, no structure, no hierarchy. And it's probably very true that there is no leadership. But it's definitely a structure and it's definitely a hierarchy. So I think the FBI was more interested in how to dismantle uh, that hierarchy and that structure. I think that's that's probably what they gained the most out of this. Besides chat logs, the most useless chat logs, uh, there's never one instance, and you could ask the journalists who have access to those logs um, out of Jeremy Hammond's discovery, there's no instance where I'm asking people for personally identifying information. Sometimes I count my blessings that things actually did work out for me because there was actually one thing that I was able to provide that did help the government, and that was being Sabu. And by being Sabu, I was, in, was able to intercept over 300 attacks against the United States, be it co private corporations like the Koch brothers, law enforcement, security companies, federal contractors. There's a lot of people that got hacked within that eight-month period that I have no idea if they even knew that they were hacked, or their customers knew they were hacked. And then what really also saved my ass was that three of the attacks were national security-based um, industrial systems, systems that if a hacker were to infiltrate and accidentally shut down, you may not have water and you may have a spike in, in the price of gas the next day, and you might have no electricity. Those national security-level attacks probably saved me as much as just the general chat logs or the 300 attacks themselves. And they never said, like, don't go after U.S. targets? Did they give you any caveats like that? There was never a situation where they controlled the flow of targets or they were annoyed when the CIA and the FBI phone centers got um, attacked no, not attacked, but flooded when Topiary posted the, you know, the low-sec phone number and people started calling in hundreds of thousands at a time. And then Topiary redirected all the phone calls to the FBI call center. They were pissed off about that. It goes to show you that they only had so much control of the situation. Otherwise, you would have saw me say, hey, guys, let's stop this. Let's, let's you know, no, let's, let's, let's do that to somebody else. It wasn't like that. Why? Because if Sabu did that, then obviously there's something wrong with Sabu. Can you describe a little bit what your working relationship was with the FBI? They basically took my old laptop and they gave me an FBI laptop. And the FBI laptop contains key loggers and a program that took screenshots every second or whatever it was. And then it also, uh, I mean, I don't know what else it did. So for that first month that after my arrest, I was obligated to show up to the office every single day. 
And after that, they just left me alone. There were times where I never even spoke to the FBI for weeks, days, months. It was only crazy in the beginning, and it got even crazier at the end. Because at the end is when all, all the shit hit the fan. You know, there was just so much chaos at the end because the FBI, I'm assuming, see, I can't speak for them, but I'm assuming they were kind of forced into um, how things played out at the end. I did not want anyone to blame me after my situation got publicized or if, God forbid, any of them got arrested. I didn't want that blame. And it sucks that I still get the blame, even though I know, I, I, I know what I did, I know what I did not do. From my point of view, there were several other informants within LawSec. Um, as far as I know, 50% of LawSec were informants in one way or another. Doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they're snitches the way people think, but this is exactly what I was trying to avoid. Tell me about Op Cartel. What was up with that? Well, Op Cartel was actually something that I think Barry Brown came up with. I think so. And I, know, remember, I remember at the time, the only two people was me who and were, pu- were pushing it were you and Barrett Brown. And you know what? It's because I agree with it. I, I, I still agree with it. And I feel like the people... See, this, this is so much hypocrisy within Anonymous and these social justice warriors. You're okay with us hacking the FBI. But you're not okay with us infiltrating a cartel? You're okay now with hacking into ISIS accounts and emails. You see what they're doing with ISIS now. They're doing exactly the same thing that I was interested in doing to the cartels. Their um, justification for avoiding op cartel was, well, what if the what if the cartels start killing bloggers and users of the internet? My man, they're already doing that. They've already killed over a million people in Mexico. All these different cartels are at war and they're killing people regardless if they're on the internet, if they're furries, if they like to speak Portuguese. It doesn't matter. You're getting killed. So wouldn't you th- don't you think it would be actually awesome if we could infiltrate these cartels and exfiltrate information that we could expose and you know bring pressure to them? Um, nobody wanted to do it out of fear. Um, I thought it was crazy. Yeah, because, but, I mean, these are the people that, like, fucking behead people and yeah, dudes but they're just doing fucking it, ruthless but, shit. But come on, they're doing that with ISIS now. ISIS is actually blowing up people. You know, yeah, the cartel may kidnap people. Guess where they're at? They're in Mexico. The point is that they're equal. They're equal danger to bloggers and internet users. But you're attacking one, but you're not going to attack the other. Why? So at that point, I'm, I no longer feel like that. I'm, 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 I'm beyond the social justice thing. I'm beyond, um, you know, trying to be a superhero and using my hacking skills to, to you know, stop time, whatever. I'm done with that. I don't care about it. So Op Cartel now to me would be irrelevant if it were to be. Um, but at that time, I thought it was a good idea. And guess who else thought it was a good idea? Barry Brown. And we equally took slack. I think, I, I think actually Barry Brown took more slack, mainly because... He's, he's an easier target to, to, to bash. People like to say, especially the Anons, and you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bash all, all, all followers of the idea of Anonymous, because there's a lot of really sweet people out there, there's a lot of good people out there, and they're not hackers. These are people that are actual activists in the street, or they're just mom and pops, or just some random 13 year old, okay? They're cool people. But there's others within that movement that control a narrative. 
And that narrative ebbs and flows depending on who's leading at the moment. Who has the more followers on Twitter? Um, anti-sec. Yeah. When did you first conceive of the idea of anti-sec and form anti-sec? Before the creation of anti-sec or Operation Anti-Security, which is the actual name of the, of the project, the idea's been sitting in my head for a while. A couple weeks before the creation of Antisec, we had a situation in Lulsec where Topiary had kind of a meltdown. He, he decided that he wanted to get away from the scene. But in the process, he, he took the position of leadership of Lulsec and closed it. Even though Lulsec, it was a decentralized group. There were no leaders. You can't just close Lulsec. It's just, that wasn't the situation. So we ended up getting into argument about it. And I explained to him, you cannot kill something that you do not control. But since you want to be like this, since you, this is what you want to do with your life, fine, so be it. Peace. I left. I spoke to a couple people. And we put Antisec together. Operation Anti-Security. To shorten Operation Anti-Security, we called it Antisec. That was more of um, showing our respects to the original Antisec. The original Antisec and Operation um, anti-security are two completely different concepts. In the case of the original anti-sec, they focus more on targeting security researchers who were participating in the full disclosure idea, who were killing zero-day vulnerabilities by leaking exploits and vulnerability information. The original anti-sec guys also didn't like some of these people that were participating in that movement, so this was a chance for them to just hack them silly. Operation anti-security we wanted to kill bugs and we wanted to own security companies and we wanted to own the government and law enforcement. The whole purpose was to prove a concept that there is no security. And I think we did a very good job at it, but in the process, we also became extremists. And you guys developed Fuck FBI Friday. Yeah. Whose idea was that? That's a good question. I don't remember. How did the FBI feel about that? The FBI didn't really care as much as people think. Like the FFF and the Fuck FBI Fridays, they really didn't care. That was kind of funny to them. When they made the Lowe's Boat video, the YouTube video, FBI was rocking that all day in the office. And when Whitey Cracker came out with Pound Anisec, they were rocking that too. And when Beast 1333 came out with Anonymous, guess what? The FBI agents are rocking that in the office as well. They were as committed to Anonymous as Anonymous was to Anonymous. The only difference was that they were both on, they were both on two sides of a coin. Are you really going to blame them for being so committed to Anonymous? Every single FBI agent from that case have all gone into the private sector. Every single prosecutor, which were three, are private attorneys. There's not one single person from that case, from the New York office of the FBI, that is still at the New York office of the FBI. So you think they were really mad at Fuck FBI Fridays? No. The Stratford hack. Tell me about, about Stratford and- So the, the story with Stratford, there's a lot of misconceptions. Did Sabu hack Stratford? People think so. Answer is no. Did Sabu give the Stratford hack to Jeremy Hammond. Everyone says yes. The truth is no. Um, who instigated the Stratford hack? Then that's a good question. 
The actual hack took place by a gentleman with the name Haraya. And Haraya was part of a subgroup of Anonymous called Cabin Crew. And Haraya hung out with them and they are all aware, they are all aware that Haraya hacked into Straffer. He stole a whole bunch of credit cards and he sold a lot of them and used a lot of them. And for him, it wasn't a political hack. For him, it was a financial hack. Then he sent a message to one of the cabin crew members saying, listen, I would love to pass this to Antisec. That person introduced me to Haraya. Haraya asked me specifically, who's the one that's gonna break into Straffer? Who's the one that's gonna log into Straffer? I said, well, it's gonna, probably gonna be Anarchaos. You want me to introduce you? And that's what happened. As soon as Anarchaos basically confirmed that yes, he was inside of Stratfor, um, and the FBI could clearly see that on my computer, they went and called Straffer immediately. They called Straffer, I think, in the beginning of December or whenever they knew that Jeremy Hammond was inside of Straffer. The Straffer company almost messed that entire thing up because they wrote a press release on the front of the website. You can actually still find the press release on Straffer.com. You just got to dig for it, but it's there. Um, dated somewhere towards the middle of December, stating that they were informed by the FBI that a hack has taken place weeks before. By the time Stratford tried to kick Jeremy Hammond out, he had set up enough back doors where he was able to still deface the main website and the database and the emails and everything was already long gone and extracted. In fact, that database was extracted before Jer Jeremy Hammond even touched Stratford because that database contained all the credit card details. As for the emails, you know, that, that was towards, you know, the middle or probably the end of December. And even Harai himself, who he wrote a letter to the judge, Judge Preska, admitting that he was the one that hacked into Straffer and he even saved a copy uh, on Pacebin where he admits to the crime and admits to how he did it. What was the idea behind um, going after all these foreign entities? Most of those servers, most of those targets were web hosting servers using Plesk. And Plesk is a control panel used by individuals or hosting companies that allow you to host many, many, many domains and emails and so on on one single installation. The conversations that he and I had regarding the foreign governments and all that, which included government of Brazil and government of Turkey and so on. The reason why we we're talking about all those different targets is because the vulnerability that Jeremy Hammond had, which really wasn't his, he, it was given to him by Haraya. It was a remote root zero day in Plesk. It was only a certain version of Plesk. You know, the attacker would get access to the administrative files or the XML files, including passwords and so on to the vulnerable Plesk installations. He had an old exploit that can only be used against a very specific version of Plesk. There was only a couple of United States government targets that were vulnerable, and there were a plenty, there were plenty more foreign government servers that were running older versions of Plesk that were vulnerable. So it wasn't a situation where well, you know what? Let's let's hack into the you know the, the government of Belgium um, because we have to fight you know the fascist government over there. No, it was because Belgium had a vulnerable installation of Plesk. There was no weird conspiracy. There was no FBI engagement or FBI directing or FBI none of that. 
it's kind of weird that I have kind of I have to kind of like defend the FBI here because that never happened. There was no conspiracy to it. It was just basically, there's a vulnerability. Let's see what's vulnerable to it. Let's let's do you know let's go to Google sites colon dot gov dot asterisk space entitled plesk and let's see what's vulnerable. It seems so fucking easy. It is easy. I'm Vince in the Bay, and I'm uh, joined, of course, by Hector Xavier Monsiger, also known as the former Black Hat Sabu. Tell me about your communications with Anarchaos, a.k.a. Jeremy Hammond, leading up to his, his eventual arrest. As far as I know, as far as, as far as I remember, they had no idea who he was. They thought that he were, you know, he was two other people. This is because they had nothing to work with. They had no means of identification. They had to rely on detective work and profiling. This is why they got the first two guys wrong. You know, I don't know the full story, but I do know that they did have one specific individual who they really thought was Anarchaos. And they really thought it was him so much that, you know, I'm sure there was lots of surveillance and lots of uh, following the guy around. And they really thought it was him until, you know, the time of the arrest when, you know, they go to, you know, basically get the guy or speak to him. And, you know, Anarchaos is talking on, on IRC or he's talking to Barry Brown or he's talking to me. And I think they, they started to, you know, build a lot of frustrations because, again, there wasn't an informant that could say, well, Jeremy Hammond, or Anarchaos is Jeremy Hammond. Uh, they didn't really have that. So relying on that detective work was very difficult because whatever information people were giving about Anarchaos to the FBI, and there was a lot of people that did give information about him, it was just all over the board. I do remember when they said, oh, we got him. We have Anarchaos. I was like, all right, I, I, don't, I don't think so, but okay. And, you know, a couple days later, I'm like, hey, did you guys get Anarchaos? I was like, no, it was the wrong guy. When March 5th came around, they basically surprised me and said, hey, guess what? We have him. We know who he is. And I said, well, eh, I, I don't really think so. I mean, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. Then they're like, okay, well, all you have to do, and that's it. After this, is over. Everything's done. Um, just get on Jabber. I'm like, okay. You just want me to get on Jabber? Yeah, just get on Jabber. All right, I'm on Jabber. Anarchia starts hitting me up. Now we're talking. We're chatting and communicating. But I have a fear in my heart because this is exactly how I was raided. You see, the day that I was raided, there was some guy on AOL Instant Messenger just talking to me and sending me messages, and he sent me internal AOL documentation Lo and behold, you know, the feds are at my door. And lo and behold, I hear, you know, the feds calling somebody, asking about if Sabu is still talking on AIM. So in the back of my mind, I'm like, damn, I hope this is not this, that kind of situation. I'm just talking to the guy. It turns out that he just stops writing back. And once he stops writing back, and I start hearing all the cheering in the background, like a bunch of, uh, um, a bunch of jocks, you know, cheering on a game or something. Something high, like giving each other high, high fives, fives and, and laughing, and I thought they were gonna start break dancing, which is kind of funny because one of the FBI agents used to crip dance. He was a crip walk rather. He used to be, I guess, gang gang intelligence. So he knew so much about the crips that he would crip walk into the office while I was there. So he's crip walking in celebration of 
apprehending anarchos. Well, I'm so I know I said I'm surprised he wasn't. Oh, but I've seen him crip walk before. It was kind of hilarious, actually. Uh, to see FBI agent Crip walk. But anyways, that's, that's besides the point. Yeah. The point is that there was a, a celebration. There was only one face in the crowd not smiling, and that was my own. And then the feds are like, well, okay, you can, you can go home now. You can just leave. It's over. And the, the thing that really confused me about this is that this case was never about anarchaos. This case was never about Jeremy Hammond. This case wasn't even about Anonymous. This case was about something much bigger, which I cannot discuss. But they needed a full guy. So in my case, they got two full guys. They got me as the, you know, the betrayer and him as the martyr. You know, it sucks that this even happened. It sucks that, you know, the media played it beautifully. And it sucks that a lot of these Anans that are online, that weren't even around four years ago, that don't even know who I am they speak authoritatively on the topic without even understanding how things work. You know, a big question, a big problem people have is that apparently I don't show remorse. Now, I show remorse for people that are in prison. I do have remorse for him being in prison. That sucks. You know, I was in prison. I was in the same facility as him. I understand. Now, I will not show remorse for something I did not do. If you're going to say, well, why don't you show remorse for snitching on him? Well, I didn't snitch on him, hence, there is no remorse. You know, with that being said, I think that people need to really, really research and think outside the box with this story. Because from the get-go, from March 6, 2012 forward, it's been nothing but media sensationalism and hype. Anonymous would not be anonymous the way it was in those years if it wasn't for media hype and sensationalism. If you really want to be angry with somebody, be angry with all those journalists and all those bloggers who hyped me up to be your leader and hyped Anarchaos to be the super hacker of the planet and basically won a collar for several FBI agents. Initially, I felt like, damn, I, I, I got a success here. I saved the kids from being taken away. So I thought, okay, yeah, all right, I, I think I did fine. Um, you know, it just sucks that everybody got, the other people got caught because they all made mistakes. I guess our operational security was horrible, whatever. But then, to go from March 4th and March 5th and all that time before, where Sabu is awesome and everything is great, March 6th, it's a complete 180, instantly, collectively, and no one's asking questions. And that really made me feel nauseous because I dedicated a lot of time to this movement and these people. But also, I almost risked my life for a movement that's so wishy-washy. In one sentence, you could say Sabu was a betrayer and an asshole, but look what else Anonymous did. We hacked H.B. Gary and we hacked the Tunisian government. And, but wait, aren't those Sabu's hacks? What's up with this double standard? It's definitely been a toll, it's definitely run a toll on me. It's definitely been a drain on my life because not only did I become the media fall guy, I also have to live with certain sig stigmas and taboos where even nowadays, when a security company wants to hire me, they have to really think hard if they want that kind of publicity. Just my very existence is a problem. And I think that's a, that's a shame.
post cooperating with the FBI, you know, they get they get their man, you move on, and now you're just kind of hanging out waiting for your sentencing, right? Correct? I had to wait for my sentencing, yeah. And um, during this time, uh, apparently you you violated a part of your agreement by uh, doing some sort of po- online post. Mm-hmm. I was banned from the internet post March 6th, but I was given special permission to look for jobs online. So they said, you know, you can get online, just don't talk to anonymous, don't interact with them. So, okay. First thing I did was I opened up a, a Tumblr account and I gave it to two people. And one of the people, which is currently part of Anonymous, leaked the Tumblr leak, the, the Tumblr link to somebody in Anonymous who's also an FBI informant. And he forwarded the Tumblr link to the FBI. Some of the posts on there were just me being, you know, just poetic. And I, I like to write, uh, you know. I like to just think outside the box and write something stupid, write short stories, write haikus, odes. So in this case, I wrote a towel to hacktivism. The problem with that piece is that there was there was uh, several different stories that upset the FBI. There was a post that I made discussing, um, you know, investigative operations um, and how to secure yourself, secure your privacy um, by avoiding certain software that leak information to an investigator, for example. That information was a violation, and that's pretty much what I really went to prison for. Mind you, I'm, I'm, I'm home, I'm depressed, I'm down, people hate me, I'm avoiding the media because I'm all over the television, I'm all over the newspapers. I'm like, you know what, let me just try to talk to somebody neutral. And I talked to one guy, he's feeding all my communications to the FBI. I make a, a Tumblr and I give, I give the URL to two people, and one of those two people give it, gives the Tumblr URL to the FBI. So I was destined for doom regardless of however I try this. That's my own fault, because what I should have did instead was just go outside and take a long walk every time I felt like I needed to speak to somebody. You end up going to prison for approximately seven months, is that correct? It's like seven and a half, almost eight months. What was that like? At first it was hard because again, I was away from the girls. I was away from the kids. The whole point of me going through in this entire melodrama was to keep the children. So <clears throat> the, children, the children went back with, with my aunt and I went to MCC. And at first when they brought me in, they brought me in as a cyber terrorist. They had no idea what the hell to do with me. They, they did not know if to bring me to 10 South, which is where the terrorist unit is at, or to put me in population or to keep me in, you know, in um, their processing, the, the original processing rooms, which is like uh, the special housing unit or whatever. Um, which is where you go when you first go into the building. They put you there for like a week or a day and then they'll ship you off into population. They keep pushing me between 10 South and SHU. They put me in population for one day. I wake up the next morning. The house is being raided. They call them turtles. In prison is a terminology, turtles. And it's basically the armed officers that come in with full uniform or full, uh, it's like SWAT team basically. That's why they call them turtles in, in prison. I got the turtle squad invading the fucking house and I'm waking up like it's my first night in population and I'm waking up like damn what the fuck happened like what's going on and no they're there for me they're there for me because they have no idea what to do with me okay and apparently the people in MCC had no idea the difference between a cyber terrorist and an actual terrorist 
so they don't know if I should be taken to the terrorists with Sheikh Mohammed and um, that the Somali pirate. He was up there. Or leave me in a box or leave me in population. And finally, after talking to my lawyers and my lawyers talking to BOP and the DOJ, they're like, well, look, this guy is a regular fucking dude. Let's just put him in population. He's there for white collar crime. I could not speak to my family. I was banned off of their computers and phones for the first two, three months. I spent two, three months not speaking to nobody. Most of that time I spent isolated, angry at the world. I was just really, really, really torn at this entire situation. But whatever, I dealt with it. As soon as I could, as soon as I got on the computer, I started using the core links email system to email people or rather add them. And then I started emailing the Department of Education, the BOP Education Department, and I requested to become a teacher. They gave me an appointment for the, uh, the testing. I passed the test and became a certified teacher within the BOP system. And after that, I just kept myself occupied, man. What, what kind of um, teaching were you doing? I was doing GD. I was teaching GD classes. And I was also teaching, um, they had a very archaic old class called um, Introduction to Computing Essentials. It's very basic. The problem is that nobody's running those classes. That class exists in the system, but there's no teachers for that class. They don't, they're not paying no one to teach. So I volunteered to teach the class. That's pretty much what I did. And luckily I had one good person in my life that sent me a lot of books. I had about 50 books in my room and I was reading and trading and writing emails for people. And, but I had no support in there. I had no financials, my family's poor. And I had to figure out ways to just maintain myself. So I was, I was actually all right. Prison's actually not bad. Prison is what you make it. So you get out of prison. Yeah. Eventually, after multiple delays, you get sentenced. Yeah. You're sentenced to what? A year probation? I was sentenced to time served with uh, a year of supervised release, which is a new thing they're doing. It's kind of like probation. It's kind of like it's kind of not. Hmm. It's like a hybrid probation parole. I don't know. It's weird. They're always changing the names of stuff. So you you've served you served your probational period or whatever they want to call it yeah now you're essentially free yeah you've come back to the internet you're back on twitter yeah when you first came back and logged on first of all how did you how did you get the sabu anonymous sabu twitter account back it's kind of funny with all the hackers and all the talented people and all the people out there that just want to get at me they overlooked my expired domain. Had they bought my expired domain, they would have taken over the anonymous Sabu account. You understand? So, so that so that anonymous Sabu was was sitting there for just years. for the taking. For years. A anybody could have taken it. Yeah. They had a couple of dollars in their GoDaddy account. They could have just grabbed it and sent a, a reset password to Twitter, and that's it. Oh, and the password I left on it was ridiculous. I left a, a, the easiest password in the world for anyone to crack it. Can you say what it was? No. Okay. Wasn't the name of your dog, was it? No, but it was a word. It was one single word. And, uh, okay, so now that you're back and you're free and you can talk and you're online and you're interacting with people, what's been the reception to you coming back? I think I gained 500 followers in a couple hours and it was constant drama and people calling me names and 
but then over the days, as I started answering people's questions, and I've, I tell people, I'm an open book, just ask me a question. The honest truth is not as exciting as what you've been sold this entire time. Some of this stuff, some of these answers are not that exciting. What's your future? Well, right now I'm really focused on enjoying my life, spending time with my family. I'm definitely not the man you spoke to on the phone many years ago. I've come a long way. I talk about education a lot. When it comes to security, people really don't know what they're talking about unless they're the guys doing the research. You can't just educate yourself by reading a bunch of tweets. You actually have to go out there and make an effort. <clears throat> I think what I really want to do is start educating and talking, teaching. All these young kids are into, that are into doxing and swatting and hacking lame-ass sites and dosing people all day or dosing Sony and dosing whatever, all that vanity, all that fame, all that little respect you're getting on IRC or on Twitter doesn't mean nothing. You could take those same skills and apply them towards something. The cybersecurity industry is up for the taking. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. You guys could take your skills and apply it to that and you can make some money to take care of your family and enjoy yourselves. So that's really what I want to do. I'll probably start my own security company. I'll probably, you know, work on uh, security research as that's my passion, you know. I really want to put a lot of focus and emphasis on that because that's really what I'm good at. Thank you, Hector Xavier Monsegur. Monsegur. Good luck to you in the future. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. Check out prior episodes and more at my blog, which is vinceinthebay.com. Of course, there's only one uh, previous episode, which is the DEF CON episode. And uh, I highly encourage you to check that out. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and hit me up on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Vince in the Bay. And remember, until next time, I love you.